0: Now you've had lots of time to to get to Hebrews 11, so I'll start straight away. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe, universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, who would embrace the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Sansang, and Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect.
1: Well, good morning everyone, and it is indeed a beautiful morning today. If you want to keep your Bibles or whatever instrument you use to look at the Bible open to Hebrews 11, that would be a good idea. You'll see it's a long chapter. Um, Having seen both the video and the Bible reading, you should be able to remember lots of names from Hebrews 11, but of course I won't be able to refer to all of them uh, today. We'll just be looking at snippets on the way uh, through. Um, today we do start a new uh, series on the book of Hebrews, um, except instead of starting at chapter 1 like you might expect, we're actually starting at chapter 11, which, as you already know, is a review and celebration of the history of faith of God's people. And I hope by the end of this sermon you'll see how this chapter fits in with the series overall now I suppose if you were to ask just about anyone what they are hoping for right now the reply would be in some way something better than what's going on right now economically we're in lots of hard times interest rates going up at breakneck speed at levels not seen for over a decade power prices already high but due to rise by another 50% or so. Much higher cost of living with no wage increases in sight. We certainly need something better. Well, it's this concept really of something better that permeates the whole book of Hebrews. Not so much in economic sense, though it is to a certain extent, but more in a relational and eternal one. The very last verse of this chapter that we read earlier in verse 40 ends by describing God's overall plan for his people as bringing about something better. And so that is what I've uh, entitled the sermon this morning, which you can see up there, simply something better. The word better is really a key word in Hebrews. It occurs about 11 times and three times itself in this chapter. But unlike our current economic climate, the something better that the writer refers to is something the people he addressed already had, already possessed. From what we can pick up from the circumstances of the readers, through the content of the book, the author, and the author of Hebrews is not known, is writing to Jewish Christians who were experiencing their own very hard times. They seemed to have been under pressure from severe persecution. So much so that many were con- contemplating going back to Judaism and giving up Christ. So the writer's intention is to flesh out the enormous benefit of what God has brought about through the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection Or to put it another way, it's to show the enormous benefit that faith in God now brings with the coming of Christ and encourage his readers and us by contrasting the steadfast faith of God's people in the Old Testament who died without even seeing at all how God's promises would be fulfilled. The writer begins, first of all, with a definition of faith and then proceeds to show how such faith was demonstrated through the ages, how God commended such steadfast faith, and then finally how such faith has now received God's ultimate reward. So first thing, we begin with faith in God defined. Verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. Now, many people have understood this verse as some sort of general definition of faith but I think that really is a mistake. This verse follows on directly from the previous one at the end of chapter 10, um, 1039 which says but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. That faith being spoken of here is faith in God who has revealed himself through word and action in the events of human history. And it's only this faith, really, that is defined in verse 1 with such confidence and such assurance. I mean, if you ask people of different religions today, and I'm sure some of you would have already done this and heard this before, whether they were assured of going to heaven or nirvana or whatever else is their goal, that they see as the goal, whatever they imagined that, many would say simply, I hope so. Or, as long as I do this or that. They would not be sure at all. But that's not so here, of the faith spoken of here. It's defined in two ways. First, faith is confidence in what we hope for, or as I put it simply, confidence about our hope. Hope and confidence are very closely related. As in the rest of the New Testament, hope is not wishful thinking or something like that. Hope is something that is certain, but has not yet been fully realised. It's certain because the God who created the whole universe has made himself known and formed an intimate relationship with his people. Hence the second part of the definition you see follows automatically on from the first. Faith is also the assurance of events yet unseen. Now I put it that way because it's not exactly the way the text reads because those words, what we do not see, uh, in the verse, that's the way they should be understood. It's not just talking about things unseen in general, you know, the visible from the invisible, um, spirits, angels, the devil, that sort of thing. The same word is used in verse 7 of Noah. By face Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save His family. Whoops, let's go back. In other words, the things not seen, you see, refers to the flood, obviously in Noah's case to come. So here in verse 1 faith in God has confidence in the things he has revealed and promised, our hope, and therefore the assurance of things that are yet to take place in that plan, events as yet unseen. Now let me say, while the wording here is simple enough, the reality of what is spoken about, faith, is more difficult to make clear. This faith in God, you see, is not just a subjective feeling. It's not what the writer is trying to say. But it's a confidence and assurance that forms the basis of our life in the present. Faith brings hope into the present and forms the basis for our daily living. In one way, this faith that God has brought about through forming a relationship with him is, if you like, proof of the future that he is going to bring about and complete the events God will bring about that are yet unseen. What the writer does then for most of the chapters is to show what such faith looks like in everyday life, in the lives of God's people through out history. From faith to fine, we move to faith in God oh, demonstrated. So what the writer does is to proceed to illustrate how faith was demonstrated among those whom verse 2 calls the ancients. The review takes up most of the chapter and many examples are referred to. But of course I can only summarise um, some of these in the whole section. But in, in that whole section from verses 3 through to 37 or whatever, 38, um, I think there are two themes which show how faith is demonstrated, which are very important. The first is that faith is demonstrated by obedience to God's word. We go back to Noah again, Remember? Noah, when warned about things, not yet Holyfield built the ark to save his family. He's told to build an ark, gather animals, every type, because God's going to destroy the world in flood. And He does what's commanded. Can you imagine what ridicule Noah must have and his family must have endured? It'd be like looking out there today. Okay, I'm going to start to build an ark. You're crazy, mate he would have endured incredible ridicule. It would have been non-stop. From Noah, then we move to Abraham in verse 8, whom God commanded just to pick up his bongos and move to another country, didn't have a clue where he was going. Here is a review of the people. The chapter refers to some of them and what they are asked to do. So Noah's asked to build an ark in verse 7. Abraham to go to another country. He hasn't got a clue where to go. And then, even worse, Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac, which we'll come back to. Moses' parents hid him so that uh, he wouldn't be killed. Uh, People passed through the Red Sea. Moses opened that up and said, oh yeah, just walk, you'll be fine. Passed through the Red Sea, and God's people walked around the walls of Jericho for seven days. Oh, yet yeah, they'll all fall over. And they did. From there, the writer's list lists off a number of faithful people without detailing their obedience to God. But he does make one thing abundantly clear. Sometimes obedience is very costly. Look at verses 36 and 37. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. I like the next one. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. Friends, our society today is becoming increasingly antagonistic to Christian faith. Especially when obedience to God differs in acceptable behaviour from what society promotes. Examples about sexual behaviour, and I don't mean just the obvious difference when it comes to homosexuality. Any young Christian adult today who says that who says to their friends that they're intending to obey uh, the biblical standard of no sex before marriage will be laughed at as coming from something like another planet. In a society that is so sexualized and equates love with sex, such a standard is nothing short of ludicrous. Sometimes faithful obedience will be costly to one's career. Unwilling to take steps that always pursue profit over people or forgoing that that, um, promotion so as to care or provide a balance with taking care of your family rather than work 60 to 80 hours a week that that promotion might require. And faithful obedience will certainly affect our wealth or the way we use our money. Something I'll say more about in a moment when we get to the example of Moses. Obedience to God's command and word can be very costly at times. What brings about the strength and power to obey God in times like that when it's very costly? Well, it's the second thing that I think is so present in this chapter. Faith in God means, secondly, a trust in God's promises. Or to put it another way, a trust in God's faithfulness to deliver what he's promised. Now, the two supreme examples given in this chapter are those of Abraham and Moses. In verses 17 to 19, we read, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead and so in a manner of speaking did receive Isaac back from the dead. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15.5, you can look it up, was that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky that he could see. Yet now he was asked to make a sacrifice of Isaac, his one and only son. Nevertheless, Abraham so trusted in God's faithfulness, he believed God could do the thoroughly ridiculous idea in his day and still considered the ridiculous idea of raising Isaac from the dead. His obedience rested squarely on an absolute trust in God's faithfulness to his promises. And then we see Moses in verses 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. You see, Moses was brought up with great privilege. Better than being brought up in the royal family today or something like that. Great privilege. Being accepted as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, his access to privilege, to pleasure of any kind and the treasures of Egypt were virtually unlimited. Yet he gave it all up to trust in the future reward that God had promised him. Described elsewhere in this chapter as a better country or a heavenly city. Friends, here's an example of faith which could not, it seems to me, be more relevant to our present day. It stands clearly against the rampant materialism that pervades our culture and tempts us to do the same. The desire for the acquisition of things. Surely as people of faith in God, we ought to stand out in the way we use our money and wealth. Seeking to live a simpler lifestyle, being generous to those in need and particularly investing in the work of the gospel and those who carried around the world so that more people might receive the eternal reward ahead. I can tell you personally that when it comes to money, I always think first. First thing I always think of is what I can spend it on. Really, really, do I ever think of how I can give it away? I suspect that's true for many of us because it's so subtle. Yet it's the very powerful influence of our culture. Now, of course, this chapter refers to numerous other others who demonstrated faith in God by their obedience to his word and trust in his promises. Of course, we don't have time to go through them all. It pays careful reflection. We must move on to where the chapter is headed. Using the language here about Moses, we move thirdly and finally to faith in God rewarded. Now before we get to what I think is really the climax of the chapter and the ultimate reward God has revealed to us, I wanted you to note in this chapter also that it's full of comments about God's grace to his people in their present lives. The first element of God's reward, so to speak, for faith is the commendation of God. Now, this is noted right at the beginning in verse 2 where it says this is what the ancients were um, commended for and right at the end, in uh, verse thirty-nine, where it says, "All these," referring to the whole chapter, were commended for their faith. Specifically, we're told that—that's um, oh, wrong. We're told that Abel was uh, commanded in verse four, commended in verse four. Enoch was commended as pleasing God in verse five. Uh, then besides Noah, Abraham, Moses, a whole stream of people in verses 32 to 35 um, are listed with a conclusion in 39. And God's commendation was not simply a pat on the back or a positive word, but involved action in support of his people. Enoch, for instance, was spared the experience of death. He was just taken away. Noah was saved from the flood. Moses rescued people from the Egyptians by crossing the Red Sea. And the stream of people mentioned in verses 33 and 34 we're told that they, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. You know, sometimes people characterise the Christian faith as something like pie in the sky when you die. But nothing could be further from the truth. Either for the ancients, as demonstrated here, or for us today. Yet the chapter makes clear that the ultimate plan and reward of God had not yet come. Their faith awaited the coming of something better in Christ. Verses 39-40 to These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That something better refers to Christ is clear if you'd read the first nine chapters or ten chapters up to this point. Jesus is better by far than everything, Hebrews says. Everything the readers had experienced, especially before with Old Testament Judaism. And We'll see that, of course, in the rest of the series as uh, it unfolds in the weeks ahead. Right now, I just want you to see what a privileged position everyone here who belongs to Christ lives in. All the ancients, you see, were faithful to God even though they never saw before they died how God's promise for a better country Or a heavenly city or a final reward would work out. I'm sure Abraham had no idea how the promise of God that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky would work out. How would he work, how would he know what that meant? But you know what, brothers and sisters? We do. We know the whole deal. We know when we die exactly what is to come. And if you've ever lost or had a Christian husband or wife, relative die, brother or sister even tragically a child die, as our family has, we don't need to wonder. Such loss will bring much grief and sadness, but in Christ there is also great comfort. For we know that that person is with the Lord, as are all the ancients. Simply awaiting Christ's return to wrap up history as we know it and open the way to the eternal city and blessing with God forever. The writer describes this era of the coming of Christ simply as the sharing in perfection at the end of verse 40. In Christ, the wonderful era of perfection has arrived. You might say, how is that so? Since most of us often equate the word perfect as meaning without sin. But that's not the way the New Testament does it, does it sometimes? But more often than not, and especially in Hebrews, it has another special meaning. Perfect means um, something like bring to maturity, to reach a goal, or bring about the fulfilment of a plan. So for example, in chapter 4 verse 15, Hebrews affirms that Jesus was sinless, yet it also states in earlier in chapter 2 verse 10 that God made Jesus perfect through suffering. You see, Jesus' perfection refers to the role of bringing about salvation through his sacrificial death for our sins. How then should we understand perfection in our case here in chapter 11. Well, fortunately, we don't have to go far. Just back a few verses to chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he, that is Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Please notice two things. First, the tense of the verb has made, not will make. Has made. And second, the time span, forever. Through the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection to new life, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, past, present and future. In that sense, He has made us perfect forever. Let's just let that sink in for a moment. Friends, we ought to be the most joyful people in the world. Relax. We don't have to do anything at all to earn God's favour. Not a thing. Our names are written in the book of life. And they are there forever. Yes, we're not sinless yet. As that verse makes clear, we are those who are still being made holy through God's spirit. But that we will be sinless in the heavenly city is absolutely guaranteed. The sharing in perfection. The ancients did not receive it because God wanted all his faithful followers to share together in this great thing. Something better. With the coming of Christ. Well, let me conclude. In this chapter, we're confronted with the courageous, with the courageous I don't know what courageous is, but courageous achievements of the ancients of the Old Testament who through their obedience to God's word and trust in his faithfulness to his promises achieved so much, but it was always partial. They never saw the incredible blessings that were to come with Christ. We, on the other hand, have received... those of us who now know Christ, who belong to him, who possess his spirit within, that we've received so much more than ever we could have anticipated. We know and share the ultimate reward of faith in God. Surely, friends, this ought to inspire us to a deeper faith where the hope we have in Christ radicalises the way we live in this world in comparison to our society and culture. After all, how will anything we might have the opportunity to share about Jesus have any meaningful effect on our friends and neighbours and workmates if they do not see a radical difference in the way our faith changes the way we live? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this great chapter of Hebrews. This great chapter that shows us how you've been working through your people from the very beginning of creation all the way through to now and will continue to do so until Christ returns. We thank you for their faith which was steadfast even back then when they could not see how things would unfold. And we thank you for the incredible privilege that we have post the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection because we do see. Strengthen us Lord, we pray to be people of faith who live a life very different from our society And use that difference to bring more and more people into this great reward. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.